Good morning, guys. So great to see you. We were uh, taking bets on how many would come today. And uh, I lost. Like, I'm so proud. Like, you guys made it out. You guys probably shoveled your driveways yesterday. Well done. Um, so good to see you. We're going to take our offering really quick. And so um, it's part of our part of our thing. It's how we worship together on Sundays. And so if you'd like to be part of that, great. Um, we are coming into a season in our church where we are uh, dipping our toes into something called practicing community. And, and it's going to kind of build and kind of get more... Um, it's going to be more like hows and whens and stuff like that as we go. Uh, but right now we're just kind of having conversation about what does it look like to be the kind of people who practice this together. And it does take work and it does take effort. And we are in a conversation around a prophetic book called Haggai. And I think this is a really, really key passage in the book. And um, the hard part about this passage is it talks about discouragement. And so we're actually going to talk about what does it look like to face discouragement as a community? And how do we, as individuals who individually face discouragement, how do we do that in community? Now, I'm just going to say something out loud before we get into this, because I have a feeling like I'm going to get really hot in here already. I don't know, is anybody feeling the heat? Nope. Like, can we, can we turn it down a, a touch? Maybe Trent or Troy or somebody... I didn't do that last week, and then I, I walked off in a rage. Like, I finished my teaching, and I walked off in a rage. A couple people saw it. They're like, dang. That and the teapot was beeping, and it got in my head, and then I got really angry. So um, I got really discouraged, and then, yeah, anyhow. So we're going to talk about discouragement. So you're like, wait a second. I wanted to pick me up. It's all snowy. No, we're going to talk about discouragement. <laughs> so uh, if you get a chance um, to, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, like uh, Mackenzie read. Um, and this is a crazy passage. So if you missed last week and you didn't catch the podcast, we're going to throw a map up on the screen. Um, and, and we're just going to kind of walk you through what's happening here. So the people of Israel... And there's a whole bunch of background in history last week, so I can't go through it all. But the people of Israel and Judah were both carted off into exile. Israel, in 722 B.C., they were, they were taken by the Assyrians. Um, and then the people of Judah were taken uh, into captivity in Babylon in, in uh, basically 100 and something years later, 586 B.C., and the crazy part about it is um, only the poor people were left to farm the land around Jerusalem, and everybody else was taken to Babylon. Now, during that time, and we went through all the history, but a new uh, set of rulers came through. In fact, the Persians came in, take, took over Babylon, and King Cyrus allowed the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem and actually Cyrus, you can read about this um, in the pages of Scripture, he actually made a decree that you could go back and you could rebuild your temple. And so not everybody returned. 50,000 people did, but not everybody. In fact, the majority of people stayed in Babylon. It just became part of their life. And you can read about them in the book of Esther, um, and then there's this great return that happens. I mean, think about a walking journey over 1,700 miles to go back to your land to rebuild. They get back. We talked about the whole thing last week. They get back, and they start immediately to rebuild the temple, but then they get really discouraged because there's some outside influences, some people who are... are, are basically threatening them. If you keep building the temple, we are going to come in and wipe you out. So they stop building the temple 
And for 16 years, they concentrate on their own homes. And there's this conversation that the, the prophet Haggai has to them, basically saying, why are you concentrating on your own homes when God's house is in ruins? So we had this conversation last week. Well, this week, the cool thing about this, these four kind of little messages of Haggai is they all take place, his messages, on specific days. And this one actually happens three weeks later, which kind of reminds me of SpongeBob. I don't know why. Some of you are SpongeBob people. Three weeks later. Um, Haggai chapter 2 starts like this. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So this is actually October 17th, okay, 520 B.C. And this date is pretty special because it's actually coming at the tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles. So the people of Israel were always taught to celebrate and remember the things that God had done in the past as a mean of, means of propelling them forward in their lives as a community. So this is one of the national feasts. This is one of the three feasts that you would actually make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. But they're already there, and they've been celebrating these feasts since their return. Now, this was, if I could recreate any of the feasts, this is one of the great ones. This is a joyful, uh, celebratory eight-day feast, like just wonderful community time. Like, think of the greatest group campout you've ever had with food and laughter and storytelling and all of the above. It comes at the end of the grape harvest, and it celebrates uh, not only the fact that God supplied the rain and the crops and, and everything for their crops to grow, but it also celebrates a wilderness journey that they took as the people for 40 years where they lived in tents. And so every year they were taught to live this out, to celebrate this feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, um, where they would erect these little makeshift houses and live in them. Now, you're supposed to be celebrating during this time. I mean, like I said, it's like one of the best campouts ever, right? Kids running around, having fun, playing games, storytelling, people remembering what God has done, uh, celebrating the harvest. But these people in this story, in this account, were not celebrating. They were just kind of doing it because it was what they were taught to do. They were not celebrating at all. They had become discouraged, really discouraged. So discouraged that they stopped working again. So they started the temple work, but then three weeks later, they stopped. So not only are they not celebrating and partying and having a great time and thinking about all the good things, they are super discouraged. Um, the question is, what are they discouraged about? Verse 2, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of, Israel, of the people, that's everybody else, all 50,000 people, ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Okay, so everybody goes off into captivity in Babylon. Some people were alive at that time, and they saw the temple before it got destroyed. And then when you return, you're returning back with a whole different group of people, but some of those folks were still alive that actually saw the temple way back when, okay? So those people are back, and there's just a small amount of people who are old enough to remember what it looked like 60 years later, okay? Now, most people had never seen it. They'd only heard stories. They'd only heard accounts of some of the older generation saying, man, you should have seen this thing. 
you should have seen the temple. It was this big and that big, and it had gold and all this stuff, and it had all this precious jewels in it, and it was just unbelievable. Now, background, Ezra and Nehemiah run parallel to Haggai, and they overlap Haggai's account, and so we can get more detail about what's going on from Ezra. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, listen to this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, okay, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So you have a group of people who are really sad and weeping, and you have a group of people who are really pumped and, like, excited. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Okay, what in the world is going on? You have the older folks, the older generation who had seen the temple and they see what's beginning to be laid, the foundation that's beginning to be laid in the rebuilding of the temple and they are sad. They are weeping. Why are they weeping? Because this one's not going to look anything as good as the last one. I mean, they can already tell. <laughs> they're like, ugh. And, but, but everybody else who doesn't know what the temple looks like, they're excited. They're like, all the younger folks are like, yeah, we're rebuilding the temple. This is awesome. We're really enthusiastic. Let's go for it. And so you have these two different reactions happening on the same event, right? And they're generationally different. Like, I don't know about you, but maybe some of you see similar things happening in the church today, generationally with different eyes. Some of you probably look and go, man, back in my day, we used to, we used to pack a church out. <laughs> and some of you today are like, man, the uh, I can't believe this many people came on a snowy day, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's like these different, like looking at things differently. The young are so excited. They're, they want to be a part of it. And the older are like looking, look, they, they, they see this thing that's being built and they're like, this thing is a shack compared to what the temple should be. And so the rebuilding got hard and, and, and they were struggling. Um, some of them are like, man, this looks pathetic. And then it, Ezra says, the weeping got so bad that it spread like yeast. Like the discouragement from the older generation was really, really beginning to spread like a cancer. Then everybody got discouraged. Then the Feast of Tabernacles comes. No one's celebrating. Everybody's in the dumps. And all this excitement should be happening but all this discouragement set in. Have you ever been so discouraged? Like even things that are like unbelievably great and beautiful are really hard to participate in. Um, tell a quick story to you all. Um, if you haven't been around our church for, let's say, 11 years, <laughs> um, there was a season... When I think about just the life of our church, there was a season that was so discouraging that um, I don't even like to think about it or talk about it. We had been a church that met on Sunday evenings, and we decided to take this huge risk. And we said, well, if we don't move to a Sunday morning, if we don't move somewhere uh, um, and grow, we're, we're not going to make it. And so we moved to the Arvada Center in the fall of 2013, and it was a huge risk for our church. I mean, not as risky as walking 1,700 miles and rebuilding a temple, but it was, it was a huge risk for us, right? And, and so many things came into place. Someone donated us this box truck. So many, like, all these beautiful things fell into place, and it felt really, really like, like the hand of God was behind it. And we put together um, some invite cards, and we did all this stuff. And the, the Sunday before the Sunday we were going to have a grand opening, um, we had a staff member that, 
a really key staff member that basically rolled a grenade right into the middle of our church. And his life just began to unravel because of the choices he was making. And it got so ugly. And our first Sunday at the Arvada Center was supposed to be this huge celebration. And it was like, I just want to get through this and go home. Like I, It was just so brutal. And if you were around for that, you know what I'm talking about. And I wish I could say that it, the discouragement quickly ended, but it didn't. It actually got worse, and it got worse. And to, around November, I think I've told you my, my panic attack story. I had a panic attack in my driveway. I was trying to put together, okay, so that sign out there, like we had a couple iterations of that sign that were temporary, um, and the first iteration was so bad um, and I'm trying to put it together in my driveway, and, and, and it's not working. Um, and then I have this panic attack. The next morning, I come to church, and um, our driver that day backed our box truck into the Arvada Center wall, like into the building. Like just crushed all this brick, and I'm like, I'm going to jump off a bridge right now. I am literally so <laughs> discouraged at this point. And our leadership team was just really struggling with what to do with a couple other issues that had popped up. And I'm just like, this was supposed to be fun. Like, this was supposed to be this excitement. This was supposed to be like, someone told me somewhere that, that God would do, like, bless it if we just went after it. And someone told me things like that. And then here's the worst part. Well, this is where the personal part hit me hard. I was supposed to have a church planting coach. You know, someone to just be like, you can do it, buddy. And here's what you're doing wrong, but here's what you're doing right. And here's what you can do to make it better. And so they gave me this church planting coach that was like the head of church planting in our denomination. Like this guy was like Yoda for church plants. And he's like, Ryan, I'm coming out. I know you guys are really struggling, but I'm coming out. I'm going to be here. And this was like the next Sunday after the guy backed it into the building. He's like, I'm going to be there. What time's your service at? I'm like, it's 930. I'm like, so happy. He's going to be there. We're going to go to lunch afterwards, and we're going to talk about it. I'm looking. It's like 9, 930. Nobody. Worship ends. He's not there finish the sermon, come out. He's still not there. We're like packing the truck up. Homeboy shows up. He's like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I got hung up at this really, really, and he didn't say this, but this is what the church was, this brand new church plant up the street that's like huge. And they're like growing like crazy. So, and I, I got to get to the airport. Do you have time for like coffee? And I'm like, inside I'm like dying. I'm like, you know, so, so here's, here's, I'm just laying out all my little pastor baggage to you. <laughs> it was like the most brutal season. I was so discouraged. And everything around me, like all the things that were happening in other people's lives and other churches and other, you know, things going on, I'm like, Phew. I was so discouraged. Those things were like, like it hurt to think about them, Right? Now, what's happening here is a level of discouragement that's like, um, it's hard for us to put our heads around it. These are a group of people that like left captivity, came back, thought that they, they were like going to do some amazing things, and all, of, all they were looking at was the rearview mirror. They had a hard time looking forward because everything w looked so hard forward that the rear view mirror was like, oh, remember those days? And then the, the pessimism set in, right? The cynicism sets in. And like, this is where I get really hung up. I get really hung up on cynicism. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you're around me enough, like sometimes I can, like the joke in our family is, I always start with no, no. And then people have to convince me to, to yes. Like, so like, hey, you want to play cards? No. 
maybe. You know, but I always start with no. Like, I'm, I, I don't know what it is right now with me. But that, that doesn't mean, here's the thing. When, we, when I say it's don't look back or like these people, all they were doing was looking back, it doesn't mean that we don't have fond memories and think back to the places in our lives that God has done things, um, not only in our lives, but in our church, right? I think it's really good to remember how God has moved in our lives. And this was some of the work I had to do during this time of being skeptical. For instance, some of you have really fond memories of our church being a set-up-and-tear-down church. And those are probably people who didn't set up and tear down our church, <laughs> right? Like, man, you come into the Arvada Center at like, uh, the service started at 9.30, so you come in at like 9.45, you know, and, and you walk in and you're like, man, this, this looks great. Like, this is real welcoming and there's coffee and there's music. I hear the music and then you get the donut and you leave and you're like, man, I'm just fond memories of the Arvada Center, right? And then some of us today are like, we're so thankful that we didn't have to set up and tear down in this. But then some of you who shoveled today are probably like, I kind of wish we were back at the Arvada Center <laughs> because they shoveled for us. But anyhow, the point is, there was, a, there was some excitement being a church that put everything back into a box every week. Some of you have fond memories of COVID house church days. And we had like 10 house churches. And you just had a meaningful experience within one of those house churches where you got to know people and you had brunch, right? And you, and you just, we just, we didn't know what was all happening in our world, but we just found a way to connect with each other and get closer. Um, some of us really, when we reflect on how God has moved in our lives, um, we, we can kind of look backwards and go, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to feel that again. You may say to yourself, like, I, I had this amazing college experience, or I had this amazing youth group experience, or I had this amazing encounter with God in my, my 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever it was. And you think to yourself, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to have that again. It just doesn't seem like it. And, and we've talked about this before. Like, in our lives, in our minds, we have this feeling like everything should just grow incrementally up and to the right. Like, if I feel this way about God today, man, I should really feel like this about God tomorrow. And we have these expectations partly uh, from being Americans, where everything gets bigger and better, everything's supposed to grow. Israel was built on feasts and festivals, stones of remembrance, places in their geography that God met them in a really powerful way. But they were never called to stay there. They never were called to just keep doing it over and over and over again. They were called to do it, in, in a sense, on the calendar, but it was meant to be something where God would re remind them of his activity and propel them to keep going. And whenever you and I compare God's activity in a former time in our lives or a former season in our lives, sometimes it can feel discouraging because you say to yourself, I wish I felt like that again. But God is always moving forward. Even though the circumstances of your life feel different, even though you have different affections in your heart, God is still moving forward. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on. A lot of times we stop at that part. All of us then who are mature should take, a sh should take such a view of things. And if some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Meaning there's like a maturity in going, I've got to keep moving. 
I've got to keep moving forward. I've got to, I mean, the past was great. I had this experience. I, or, or the past was difficult and messy and all that kind of stuff. I've got to keep moving forward. Maturity is thinking this way. And so what happens is we all get discouraged. But I think the second thing that happened with this group of people is there is a pessimism that started to spread. And a cynicism that started to spread. And this happens when we allow our discouragement to kill the joy of others around us. And it's kind of like this. It's like those SNL Debbie Downer skits, right? If you've never seen those, that's your afternoon homework. This temptation is that there's so much joy. There's joy happening in other people's lives around us. And we haven't, we haven't become aware of the fact that we're cynical and skeptical and discouraged, and we just, we can't handle the joy around us. We can't handle the enthusiasm around us. And we're just looking back, and there's this, like, slow drip, and things get bad, and things get worse, and we almost self-fulfill the discouragement that comes next. There's this passage in Proverbs. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but it's a poetical passage. And um, it goes like this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And what, what, what happens is, is like that verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. It's a poetical way of saying there's six things the Lord hates, but there's one thing that God can't handle. And that's a person who stirs up conflict in a community. And I think that's what's happening when cynicism and skepticism begin to spread in a community, when there's discord, when you cut the joy off of others. And, and, and if we're going to practice community, like we have to really, really be aware of the fact that we bring something to the community. And you could be discouraged. And, and it's okay to be discouraged. And let's figure out how, as a community, we can come around your discouragement. But I think what happens a lot of times in communities is we, we begin to worship forms over functions. Meaning, our function, why we exist as a church, is for God's glory. To bring God glory from uh, like uh, the surrounding community, the people in our lives, but we're, we're supposed to be reconciling people back to God, and we're supposed to participate in the way of Jesus together, and that's like our function, right? But a lot of times, churches get sideways in their forms, meaning the most important thing is how they do it, or how it feels, or how their image is in the world. And we love, we're human beings, we love to attach ourselves to forms. And the how, and you know, and the, kind of the, what it looks like and how we do different things. Now, there's a couple things that are about to ha that are happening in the life of our church that they're going to throw a curveball at us as a community. The first one is, at some point, we're going to move down there. Okay? So it's going to feel different. Some of you are like, yeah, we can't wait. But there's some things we can't, we can't know how it's going to feel. Like There's some ways it's just going to kind of change some dynamics. We don't know what that looks like yet. And the other thing we're trying to do is, in the life of the church is increase our participation together. Not necessarily like all on Sunday morning, but like how we all participate in this community. And so those are things that are going to be really hard like, have you ever been into a church that, for years, they had a piano on one side of the stage, and they decided to move it? And then the emails, or the conversation, like, why did they move the piano? 
Like, it's like a natural human thing, right? And we're going to have those things. That then, and if you have those things, talk to Gary. He's, on our, he's like a head of facilities. And I'm just saying, like, it's easy to worship forms over function. And I think that's uh, it's something what the people were dealing with a little bit here. But, but what do you do when all the growth has stopped in your life or all the perceived enthusiasm for what God's doing has leaked out of your life or a community's life. What do you do? Verse 4 says, but now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So what's going on here is there's a, a few things, a few commands that God gives through Haggai to the people. He says, be strong three times. Three times. And what does that mean? Like, be strong. <laughs> it means like there's, there's something in this of like set your mind, set your heart, set your community towards strength. Like clench a fist, like be strong. Get to work. <laughs> so he says get to work. There's something happen when we just begin to move towards something in our lives. Get to work. Start somewhere. Verse, and then the third one is, I am with you. Now, one of the benchmark events for the people of God is the Exodus story. And this is the biggest event in their existence as a, as a, hum, as a, as a community and it was a benchmark event for the rest of their journey. And the promise in Exodus 19 was God's presence would be with them. So as you know, when they leave, they, they leave Egypt, they have the pillar of fire and they have the cloud and they have the, the presence of God, God promising his presence to be with them. And that's what's happening again here. And the fourth thing, it says, do not be afraid, do not fear. Now, if you have Jewish ears, um, these are the same things that's, that David told Solomon when David told Solomon that he would be the one to build the temple, the temple that was in ruins that they were rebuilding. First Chronicles 28 goes like this. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you, and for, uh, forsake you until all the work of the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Same four things. Be strong. Get to work. Um, I am with you. Do not be afraid. Now, the, the key is, is the people needed to realize, um, and, and some of the conversation was happening, was it's, this is not going to be the same. This temple is just not going to be the same. So if it's not going to be the same, it's not that exciting to be a part of it. But what Haggai is saying is the same God that was behind the original temple that Solomon built with the gold and the jewels and all the things, that same God is going to be involved in this. And I think a lot of times you and I need to hear that. Like the same God that met you in your lowest spot of your life, the same God that you know, steered you towards transformation in your life and healing, that that same God is still working. And church history really helps me with all of this because there's this human side of this mess we call the church that happens all throughout church history. And that some people are like, man, reading church history is so depressing. I'm like, no, it's so encouraging. It's so great to know that everybody jacked it up. All the way through. And so there's this idea here with Haggai, keep going, keep trusting, keep reconciling, keep repairing, keep, 
keep asking forgiveness, keep pursuing, keep checking in, keep gathering, keep praying together. This is like our charge because it's not in vain. And God wants to do good work in us before he wants to do good work through us. And so there's one more reason for this temple that they're rebuilding, even though they feel like it's just going to be a little shack, Haggai says, you have no idea what will come through this temple. And it says in verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. Do you remember that language from Revelation? This idea of like, this is when God moves the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant my peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, word peace is the word shalom. And shalom isn't just like the absence of conflict. Um, Walter Brueggemann wrote, shalom is an announcement of how the world should be and is not yet. It is a world that is safe, free, whole, secure, prosperous, just, reconciled, and complete. The word Jerusalem is actually Jerusalem. It actually has it in the name. John 14, this idea of Jesus said, I will, I'm leaving soon, but I will leave you my peace. I will leave you the spirit. And, and, and this idea of trust me, God's saying, trust me, you can't see the end game, but I do. And it looks like a shack now, but hang in there. It's kind of like this idea of the progressive revelation that's happening in Scripture. There's like a nearness that they're seeing, like, hey, rebuild the temple, but there's a future that which through it is going to be so beautiful, and both are true. So in this sense, this is the temple, the same temple they're rebuilding right now, that hundreds of years later, the same temple, Jesus is going to get, uh, he's going to sneak away from his parents and get found at. You remember that passage where they're like, where's our kid? They're like on their way back home from a feast. And they're like a couple days into their journey. And they're like, who's, where's? And they go back and they find Jesus. And he's hanging out in the temple with the priests and the Levitical people. They're like, they're like this guy's amazing. It's the same temple that Jesus would show up and turn temple tables over in. It's the same temple that Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives and look, overlook the temple with his disciples, and, and, and they're just like, man, that thing is amazing. Like, it was almost done. It was like Herod was tricking this thing out. It was huge. It was beautiful. It was like one of the seven wonders of the world. And the disciples are like, man, that is amazing. And Jesus is like, hey, temple's going to be destroyed, and in three days, I'll raise it again. They're like, what? Are you crazy? And it turns out he's talking about himself. And then he would rise from the dead. The, the, the whole idea here is the Messiah of the world would come through this temple. And we also know that this temple would eventually be destroyed again. In AD 70, the Romans under General Titus come through and they demolish the temple. And to this day, the only thing left is the Temple Mount. And that is it. And to this day, the Dome of the Rock, okay, the temple, it's never been rebuilt. But Jesus tells, I mean, the Revelation tells us that there's, no, there's not going to be need of the temple. And it says in Revelation, you guys, you guys thought you were done with Revelation, but you're not. Revelation 21, it says... I did not see a temple in the city, John says, because the Lord, Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon or the shine in it. And the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb its lamp. The nations, this is great, will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Do you remember that part in Ezekiel where Ezekiel's like, hey, 
You, you don't have silver and gold to trick this temple out, to make it like it was when it was Solomon's. But I can shake the world, and, temp- and kings will bring splendor. This is the idea behind Revelation. It's just like uh, the kings are going to bring everything, and one day its gates will ever, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only whose names are written in the book of life. So basically what Haggai is saying is this little insignificant shack that you think you're rebuilding, it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. And I know you can't see it right now, but I just want you to do something for me. I just want you to be strong I want you to get to work. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. So what are we meant to see here? A lot of times we read these passages and we're just like, well, that's weird. Um, I, think, I think what we need to understand, guys, is that discouragements come, discouragement will come. It will continue to come. This isn't the kind of uh, teaching that says, you know what, if you just kind of suck it up and trust, your life's going to go up and to the right. Discouragement will come. It's not if, but when. How we respond to discouragement as a community is what's important. How How we walk with each other in discouragement is what's important. Because bitterness has a way of becoming something we worship. It's actually a form of worship when we get bitter. And so this idea of being the kind of community that stays together, that is together in the midst of everything, this is why we gather in worship and prayer. Because who we worship and what we trust has everything to do with how we fend off discouragement. And we keep moving forward. Now, what I want to do today as we finish, and there's no more singing today. Um, I, I wanted to do something because I recognize that many of us may be dealing with discouragement. And not just on the level of how circumstances have unfolded in our lives. That's part of it. Then that's a real thing. But I think there's many of us in this room that if we're really honest, we are discouraged with where we're at in our faith. Like how our journey of following Jesus has gone. And some of us in this room probably are at a point where we've thought, you know, I thought by the time I got to this stage of my life or this age that I would feel more joy and enthusiasm for what God was doing. And some of you maybe have um, gone through some very difficult um, experiences when it comes to the people of God. And you're having a hard time even being around enthusiastic Christians. Like it, it also, it's, like, it's like salt in the wound. You know what I mean? I think one of the hard things right now for me is there's a lot, there's a, been over the last number of years, a huge movement in the, the, the worship music industry of our Christian industrial complex <laughs> that celebrates this, um, this enthusiasm and this joy. And, and it's, I'm not saying that those things aren't available to us, they are. But in my discouragement at times, I look at that, I see that from the outside looking in, and I go, oh. and I'm cynical. 
I'll just be honest with you, I'm cynical. And that's one of the places in my life that I have to continue to readjust and own and name. So my question to you, I'm going to throw a few questions on the screen, and I just want you to sit with these for a little bit. Are you discouraged? The idea of just naming it is really important. Are you discouraged? Do you feel like the most transformative days of your life with God are behind you? I've had conversations with folks that are like, man, I'm never going to have a small group like I had, you know, when I was in college. Or I'm never going to have a retreat experience like I had when I was at this stage of my life. Are you skeptical or cynical about what God can do now versus what God did in the past? These are just try not be honest questions here. How do you feel, and this might be helpful for you to, to, to answer the first two, how do you feel, what happens inside of you when people around you are enthusiastic about what God is up to? Do you feel a sense of pushback inside? Do you feel like a yeah, but? Come on. Church, I want to be an honest church. Like, I really do. I want to, I want to talk about things very honestly. Like, I want to like, just be real about that. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat you. Our goal today isn't to leave you with a certain level of endorphin bump as you leave church every Sunday. That's just not our shtick. But I want to wrestle with the discouragement. I think it's good to be honest about those things. And you could, be very, you could be sitting in this room and be very discouraged about your experience in this room. That's okay. So what I want to do is, is I want to pray for our discouragement. But I want to know if you are willing to be vulnerable a little bit in, in this way. What I want to do is before I pray for a discouragement and before we pray for others who are going to be honest about being discouraged. What I want to do is I want us to all stand together as we close. And here's what I would say. We've done this in the past and we get mixed reviews. Some of you are going to be really discouraged about this. (laughs) But if you're feeling the weight of these questions and you are feeling like that's where I'm at, that's where I'm struggling, I don't know what's behind it, I have a hard time seeing God at work, I have a hard time believing that God's best is in front of my church or my life, and I, I'm, just, I'm just kind of near just a really frustrating, skeptical, cynical time in my life. I want you to be very honest and I want you to sit. And and by sitting, what you're saying is, I'm I this is where I'm at. I I I feel like people already know it, (laughs) but I'm just gonna sit. And then what we want to do is pray for you. We want to pray over you. We want to care for you in this moment. And so if you're feeling that sense of discouragement, feel free to sit. No judgment. Just honesty. Yeah. Circumstances in your life that you're like, why didn't God come through for that? I feel like he should have because I've been going to church a lot. (laughs) Whatever. Now, what I want us to do as the people of God is surround folks that are sitting. And I want you to pray for them. You can pray silently, you can pray out loud. I think it might be good for you to pray out loud. But would you take a couple minutes, like a couple seconds and just find someone around you that could use some prayer, just kind of gather around them. And then I will close this in prayer, okay?
Ready, break. God, part of practicing community is holding each other up. Part of practicing community is this idea of being strong. We can't sometimes manage to be strong on our own. That we all face different things and circumstances in our lives. And part of being in a community is to link arms together and give each other strength. God, I think you're telling us the same thing today, to be strong, to get to work, to get after the work that you've called us to do with each other, for each other, for our world, that you've promised that you will be with us. And Jesus even said that in this world you will have trouble, but I leave you my peace. I leave you my shalom. And you've told us to not to be afraid. Do not fear. So God, we uh, take... um, the encouragement from each other forward in our lives. We ask that you would continue to guide us as a church, that you would find ways for us to be intentional with each other. There may be a coffee or a meal that has to happen as a result of this conversation today. Or we pursue each other to try to encourage each other. And God, be our God and lead us forward together. Amen.